0: Good morning, everyone. It's really good to see all of you. The, <laughs> the weather is starting to change a lot into winter, and it's um, rapidly happening. So <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad that you are all here. Pretty soon we're going to be meeting with it being dark outside morning and evening. But so as we, as we continue our series on the church today, we, we, we will continue building from last week. So last week we saw that the church belongs to Jesus, and this is apparent in two ways. We saw that the church on the one hand is the bride of Christ, who is spotless, loved, and desired by him. And on the other side, we saw that the church is the body of Christ, which means that Christ is the head of the body. Christ is the one, the leader, the authority in our church. And we as the body work together to make sure that the body functions well. And so as we look to the definition which I gave last week, we will continue looking at this. So just to remind us... Last week, we saw that the church is a holy Catholic Christian congregation consisting of believers who are united to Christ, their head, and to each other by a special bond. And in this definition, we saw how the church is the bride, but also how the church is the body, with Jesus as the head. And this morning, we will examine what it means for the church being called by the Holy Spirit, what it means that they are separated from the world, And also what it means that this work of the Holy Spirit is seen in the church's commitment both to Christ as well as to the rest of the body. And then finally, what does it mean to strive side by side with other Christians for the glory of God? So as last week was a bit of a foundational teaching on what it means to be the church, I hope that today will be a bit more practical and exhortational. Uh, What does it mean um, for the church to be separated from the world? Some practical examples. What does it mean for the church to live for the glory of God? What does this look like and how should the church function? The title for today's sermon, therefore, will be The Church, A Community for the Glory of God. The Church, A Community for the Glory of God. And we'll jump into the first point today, how we see this community for God's glory. The first point is that the church should be word-based. In this definition, we say that the Holy Spirit calls people out of this world to make them the church. How does this happen? Well, Romans 10 tells us that it happens in one way, that they who are in the world can believe. And how will they believe if they have not heard? How will they hear if no one's preaching? So they hear by the word being preached. And he continues in Romans ten fifteen. How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feast, feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So here we see two things. We see that those who preach are sent out. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach. But also that faith That which draws us out of this world, that which makes us part of Christ's church, comes by hearing. Hearing what? Well, the word of Christ. So we clearly see it's important for churches to preach the gospel because the Lord uses the preaching of the gospel to make people part of the body of Christ, to make those in the world part of the church. The Lord uses the church primarily to bring people to salvation. But it's important to remember that the church is not only a place for the unconverted. You know, many people say that the church is a hospital for the sick, and that is very true. But the church is also there to preach the word to those who are already Christian. The church is also there for those who are healthy. It's not just a hospital for the sick. We see this when Jesus sends out the disciples. He tells them to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So this preaching and making disciples of all the nations, making converts of the nations, also includes teaching them the things which Jesus taught the disciples. So teaching is something which is commanded by Jesus. Teaching is part of Jesus great commission. Many times we think the great commission is just to go out and preach the gospel to the unconverted. A very big part of the great commission is continuing to teach those who are already Christian. And so Perhaps you come to church and you're unsure why they're preaching and teaching each week. I think most of us it's pretty clear, but for those who are, it's unclear, it's it's in obedience to Jesus. We do not preach the, the, the Bible or the gospel because it's easy, because it's certainly not. It's in obedience to what Jesus commanded those who follow him do. And we also see that churches not only preach the word because it's commanded by Jesus, but it's also done so that the people of God may know God. John 20, verse 31, says that these things are written, referring to the the words of John in the gospel, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it teaches us something about Jesus. It teaches us that Jesus is the Son of God. And the word teaches us various different things on God. We went through this in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we're continuing this evening about the attributes of God, the various things which make God God, God's wisdom, God's justice, the Scriptures teach us these things, and it needs to be preached that God's people may know Him. We know also when Paul speaks in First Corinthians three, there is this interesting analogy that he uses, saying that he did not feed them with solid mi- with solid food, but rather with milk, since the Corinthians were not ready for it. So we see that even in the church pastors preach both to spiritual infants as well as to spiritual mature adults and the scriptures are sufficient to feed both and I think this is the beauty for me when we look at why churches should be word-based it's not only that it brings the world and makes the world part of God's bride but that the scriptures when they are preached nourishes both the infant Christian as well as the mature believer. As pastors, we need the people of God, both infants and mature believers, to be fed. And the only way to do this is by giving them the word of God, by giving them the gospel. So when we look at what it means to be the church, what does it look like to be the church? We have to start with the word. The church needs to be word-based. So in this definition, we say that the Holy Spirit calls using the word, We also see that we grow using the word. But we need to remember what we are called from. What is it that the Holy Spirit calls us from? When we speak about the Spirit using God's word to call us into the body, what are we called from? And this is the second point today then. The church should be countercultural. The church should be countercultural. What does it mean? What does it mean when we say the church should be countercultural? Well, a quick dictionary definition tells us That countercultural means a way of life or a set of attitudes opposed to or at variance with the prevailing social norm. So, I mean, for many of us, you'd be like, well, that's that's fairly easy. We live in a very anti-Christian world. Being countercultural shouldn't be too difficult, right? I mean, most of us can agree that abortion is wrong when society says it is right. Most of us would agree that getting drunk and doing drugs on the weekend and just living for yourself is wrong, even though many people in society wouldn't dis- would disagree with that. Yet so many aspects of the church still resemble so much of the world. We spoke on the Lord's Day for four weeks. I mean, how worldly do many Christians live when it comes to observing just the basic Christian idea of gathering together? Have you listened to Christian music these days? that sounds very worldly, very like the culture. Perhaps the clothing that many Christians wear, many Christian pastors, many Christian celebs, there's virtually no difference in the way that they dress and the way the world dresses. Or perhaps the conversations. Have you ever had conversations that people who profess to be Christians and you're sitting there like, wow, these conversations are really not God-glorifying. So, In many aspects, yes, the church is countercultural to the big cultural issues that we see. But in a lot of aspects, many churches resemble so much of this world. And we should not desire to look like this world. We see this in 2 Peter 2, where Peter speaks on those who are in the world false teachers, where he says, they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that He is enslaved. For if after we have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Did you catch that? Peter is saying here that it would have been better for those who know the way of righteousness, who know the truth of Christ, to have never known it, than to have known it and to go back to the world. Why would a Christian return to the world they've been saved from? I mean, it's like a dog returning to its own vomit. Why would the church want to return to the world that she has been saved and set free, free from? This is why we as the church need to look different than the world. And you know, this is a great warning for us. We who are ministers of the gospel, we who are part of the church, especially here in Norway, I mean, look around us. What does the church look like? For many of us, the church largely looks more than the world and the bride of Christ. And as I look in front of me, I mean, there's about 20 of us sitting here. The temptation would always be to change the way we do church to suit us and look like the world, to draw more people in. I heard this analogy once, which, I mean, brought tears to my eyes and to my wives, but it speaks about the church. And it speaks about the church as the bride of the King. And so here's the analogy. We see a king with a bride who is spotless and stainless. And he he says he's going away for a while. And he leaves his bride in the hands of one of his stewards. He even leaves the steward a book explaining exactly how to look after this bride. But you see, while the king is away, the people of the kingdom become really disenfranchised with the bride. I mean, she's no longer relevant. She's boring. She's too traditional. She's really not keeping up with the times. So the steward then decides, well, perhaps it's because of the way she's dressed. Perhaps it's the way she speaks. So the steward takes this bride, puts new makeup on her, takes a different dress, puts a dress on her that would be more appealing to the people in the kingdom. And parades are up and down the city, drawing a lot of carnal men who apparently worship the king to this bride who now looks more like a prostitute than the bride of the king. What will the king do? When he comes back, what will the king do when the bride, whom he left spotless, blameless, dressed in white, in the hands of his stewards, all of a sudden dressed like a prostitute, dressed like the rest of the world, dressed like the carnal man that the steward sought to draw to the king? Yet how many ministers in the church today do this? How many ministers take the bride of Christ, take the church, dresses her up like the world, drawing carnal men to apparently Jesus, and then thinking that this is fine. How many church members ask for this? How many church members say, well, the church is really no longer relevant. The church really cannot look like she looked 2,000 years ago. The church really cannot look like the way Jesus said she's going to look when he comes back. The church really needs to resemble the world more to draw the world into the church. I mean, when we think about the church being Christ's, This is exactly the reason why she needs to look different than the world. Precisely for the reason that she is Christ's property. And you, Christian, you also need to look different than this world precisely for the same reason. You are Christ's. And so, as Christians, we need, in a world that so easily entangles us in its sins, in a world that is so rife with sin we need to decide who we would like to serve. It's either Jesus or the devil, and we need to trust in one of them for eternal salvation. If you trust in the world, by all means, run after the world. But if Christ is the one whom you trust for salvation, then Christ is the one in whom you should delight. In the bride of Christ are the people in whom you should delight. I mean, consider the words of Christ. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is a scary thought. That as we look to this church, as we look to the church in Norway, as we look to many Christians... Do they realize that they are enemies of God with a result of their friendship with this world? We really as Christians who desire Christ and do not desire this world really need to pray for the church especially in Norway and in the US and in South Africa and wherever you are from. Because Christ is coming back for his bride and this world loves to corrupt the church. This world loves to view God's people in enmity with him so the obvious question now might be well how does this present how do we how do we see this sure the Holy Spirit calls people from the world sure the word is being used and and sure we need to look different from this world but but how does this manifest how does this look like practically well this is where the second part of that definition helps me at least But it states that this work, this work of drawing people out from this world, is manifested by a loving commitment to Christ and his bride, and by striving side by side for his glory. So our next two points will examine this commitment that we as Christians have to Christ and his bride, but also what I mean by this idea of striving side by side for Christ's glory. The third point then would be church is a commitment. Church is a commitment. Now, this actually builds on the previous point, on the church being countercultural. If you think about it, we live in such a a non-committed nation. People don't even get married anymore. Most of this world really just live together and here today, gone tomorrow. Yet, the Bible clearly tells us that we as Christians should be committed. This is actually very countercultural. I mean, people getting married, having kids, it's probably one of the most countercultural things we can do these days. And so when we look at our commitment, we firstly and obviously see that we are committed to Christ. Our commitment starts with being committed to Jesus. Hebrews 12 tells us that since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run the race with endurance or perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand on the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I think many times we look at this Hebrews passage and we're like yeah I know we should run this race with endurance we should be committed to Jesus we should really persevere we shouldn't stop when things get difficult but many times we don't look at the fact that the reason we should do this is because Jesus did it first Jesus endured death Jesus endured the cross in other words Jesus was so committed to saving you that he endured death. And for many of us, we're like, yeah, well, that's what he came to do. Well, we've seen the God, and he, he didn't want to do it. He said, Lord, your will be done, not mine. So when we speak about our commitment to Jesus, the Christian life being a commitment, we need to be committed to Jesus because he was first committed to us in giving his life. So perhaps the next time you're growing weary of actually running this race with endurance, perhaps you're growing weary of of doing this Christian life in a world that really seeks your ruin, we should meditate on the fact that Jesus endured the cross for us. He endured opposition from sinners so that we might not grow weary and lose heart. The basis for our endurance is not our own capacity to endure. The basis for us standing in the face of adversity is not on us. And that's really good news because we will fail. The basis for us enduring whatever comes our way is the fact that Jesus endured death for us. That we might not grow weary and lose heart. And this is this is really good news. This is amazing news. Jesus, the Perfector of our faith, endured so that we might not grow weary and lose heart. But here comes the difficult question. I mean, nobody sitting here, and very few Christians would argue with the fact that, yes, we should be committed to Jesus. That's sort of the whole point of the gospel, that Jesus should be king. But being committed to a church, is that in the Bible? Being committed to gathering together, I mean, in the last few weeks, we read this passage, I think, almost every Sunday, but not forsaking to assemble together, as is the matter of some, manner of some. So, clearly see the assembling of the church people, something that we should do. But we should be reminded that being committed to the church, being committed to come here every Sunday, is more than just getting a gold star for attendance. It's more than just coming on a Sunday. It really is being committed to the work of God. Last week we saw that it requires submission to God's authority. It's actively participating with our gifts, actively coming together as the body of Christ, giving ourselves, giving of our gifts to one another that the body may be built up. That's why last week was so important, speaking about what we can give. But I also want us to be reminded that the church aren't the only people benefiting from you coming to church. Church is also really good for you. Being committed to church is not only good for the church, but it's really good for you. Firstly, while well, the church is a place to grow. We spoke about this, right? From spiritual milk to spiritual food. Our bodies need nourishment to function, and so do our spiritual lives. And this spiritual food includes various things. It includes being discipled, worshiping together, praying together, hearing the gospel preached. So as we Christians come together, Gifted teachers and preachers who know God's word and know how to use God's word can actually help us grow. This is why when they speak of us as Christians to be like a tree planted, we should be like a tree planted and trust that God will use preachers and leaders in the church to plant, as we are planted, to grow us, give us fertile food and water and cause us to grow spiritually. So the church is good for you because it's a place where we grow. Church is also a place to work together. You know, I think modernity really has failed us as Christians. We're, we're raised to be fiercely independent people. Most of us rely on our own effort, intelligence, skills, and strength to achieve whatever we hope to achieve. I mean, especially in South Africa, where we come from, we're really pushed by our parents to really work hard. You know, you need to make, you get a scholarship for university, get a good job. You're really pushed as an individual to achieve. And we don't really think in terms of large group identities. Perhaps maybe something like 9-11 drew the American people together as a, as a big group identity. Or perhaps even smaller group identities like college football brings groups of people together. But it's no surprise then when we look at this world and we look at the church that this sort of hyper-individualism that the world preaches has found a very strong foothold in the church. We place, in my opinion, far too much emphasis on our personal relationship with Jesus while viewing this corporate expression of our faith as something that just advances our personal experience with Jesus. So we sort of use the church as a means to have a better personal relationship with jesus as opposed to having a personal individual experience which is really important but then viewing this corporate gathering as something that is really good for us i mean it's it's quite bizarre how many people after covid never went back to church how cyber communion and you know cyber meetings and cyber prayer meetings just became the norm. I mean, this sounds quite odd somehow, and, and it should. What we're seeing here is not even a sort of positive individualism where I'm responsible for the conduct of my life, my attitude, and my actions, but rather a negative sort of individualism where any sort of corporate responsibility or accountability or effort is just disregarded. It really is an individualism that becomes narcissistic. And even according to psychologists who are not Christians, they would say that this sort of individualism is really bad for you. One psychologist writes saying that in very few publicized instances is this practice of rugged individualism good for the human psyche. This usually leads to poverty ostracism and disgrace so while this is true of temporal matters we really see this being true in spiritual matters as well you know how often have we looked at people who reject the need for corporate worship and fellowship just sort of drifting away from the faith altogether i've seen many such instances people who start off saying oh you know it's it's difficult to come to church it's 15 minutes drive we're just gonna stay at home and just watch the service from home and then after a few weeks, they stop coming to the Zoom meeting. I'll listen to it on sermon audio in a few weeks. And then in a year's time, people have just drifted from the faith. Why could this be? I personally think, and I think scripture shows that humanity was never created to be alone. This isn't just a, a matter of personal preference or personality. I think in our creation, DNA, the way we are created... We were created for community. In Genesis 2, God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God has formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And obviously we know Eve was created. So in our way we are created, we see that we do not thrive or grow alone. Scripture tells us that a community is important and really good for us. 1 John one seven tells us that Walking in community, being in community, is actually evidence that we walk in the light. Matt referenced this in his sermon on membership. That as we are gathered together, it is evidence that we walk in the light. But as we read this morning in Galatians 6, I want us to see that bearing one another's burdens is not just a suggestion. We actually fulfill Christ's commands when we help those In the community of faith. Again, Galatians 6, verse 2 tells us that we should bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have his own bear to bear his own load. So we see here we, as Christians, are not created to bear our own load. We should bear one another's burdens, thereby fulfilling the law of Christ. It is, in fact, commanded by Jesus for us to bear one another's burdens. It's not a a suggestion. And I think we as the church were perhaps a lot of times too soft on this matter, where we're like, it would be really nice if somebody could help us out. I mean, this family is really struggling. Can, Can we perhaps make food for them? It's something that Christ commands of us to do, to bear one another's burdens, and I really pray that the Lord would show us as Christians how we might better do that, how we might better bear one another's burdens, whether that is looking after one another's children when it's kids' catechism so that the one can be taught, whether it's taking a meal to a family when both parents are sick. It is truly my prayer for this church that we would bear one another's burdens and thereby Filling the law of Christ, but we also see something interesting about community. That even though bearing one another's burdens, it's comfortable for those receiving, and it's really gratifying. That it could be challenging sometimes. Proverbs twenty-seven speaks about ironing, sharpening iron, right? And we all know that scripture. Perhaps we haven't thought about what that looks like. Ironing, sharpening iron is is not a comfortable process. It is a very uncomfortable process as iron sharpens iron and so community is a place where we challenge each other to grow into maturity i would hope and not just challenging each other for the sake of winning arguments or challenging each other for the sake of challenging, challenging each other but truly challenging one another that we might grow matthew 18 verse 20 is a scripture we all know it says That the Spirit of God is there when two or more are gathered. Jesus is there. So when we look at the church, the gathering of God's people, it is also the place where Jesus promised his presence would be. That's a glorious thought. When we gather, Jesus promised that his presence would be with us. If that's not encouragement to come together on a Sunday, I don't know what is. Going to the place not only to bear one another's burdens, not only to serve one another, but actually being somewhere where Jesus is. So, as we look at this, we see that Jesus is with his people. We are not individuals. We are part of the body of Christ. We can serve one another. And my trust and my prayer is that after this series on the Lord's Day and after this series on the church, we would be convicted to use our gifts and lovingly serve one another in the presence of God. You know, when we look at Scripture, we see that this journey of faith really is something which happens in community. The very idea of a personal experience with Jesus that's purely personal is really foreign to Scriptures. I mean, the earliest Christians clearly didn't have such an individualistic notion of their spiritual life. I mean, the book of Acts speaks of them having all things in common. That's a very challenging scripture because when you look at how they lived in Acts, they actually gave their possessions to one another. And that—that's ai wouldn't preach on that passage because I don't think many people would receive that well. And I, I also don't think we are called to give our car away. Perhaps you are. But most of the times we're not really called to give our possessions all the time. But I think the fact of the matter remains that we as Christians are called to take care of one another and having all things in common. In the early church, it's interesting that those who rejected worshipping together, those who rejected bearing one another's burdens, those who rejected challenging one another, and those who re- rejected rejoicing with one another and praying for one another, were actually considered arrogant, prideful, and sinful. I mean, there are many examples in the early church, early church writings where they would rebuke one another for doing these very things. And when I look at the community of faith, I, I always come back to this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, when he speaks on the importance of us as Christians to pray for one another, why it is important to, to pray. And he says, I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I have prayed. No matter how much trouble he causes me, his face that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed through intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died. And this is at the heart of Christian community. This is at the heart of this sermon. This is at the heart of these two sermons is that the people sitting next to you are the people for whom Christ died died and when we pray for those for whom Christ died it is very difficult to condemn or hate them because you see them as Christ sees them his children so the final point then as we conclude this morning is that church should be done for the glory of God and this is a really quick point because everything we do Glorify God. We see this in 1 Corinthians 6:20, which tells us that we were bought for a price, so we should glorify God in our body. And also in 1 Corinthians 10:31, that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, it should be for God's glory. So if the mundane things like eating or drinking should be for God's glory, then surely the more spiritual things like doing church, doing community, serving one another, bearing one another's burdens, should be for God's glory. So as God's people called by his spirit for God's purposes, when we pray, it should be for God's glory. When we serve one another, it should be for God's glory. When we gather, it should be for his glory. So as I come to my conclusion this morning, let's look at this definition once more. As I hope we're on the same page When it comes to the church. The church is a holy. Catholic Christian congregation. Consisting of believers. Who are united to Christ. Their head. And to each other. By a special bond. This work. Is done by the Holy Spirit. Who has called them. Through the word of God. And separated them. From the world. This work is manifested by their loving commitment to Christ and his bride as they strive side by side for his glory. And church, this is not only a definition of what I believe the church to be, but this is truly my prayer for this church. That when people speak of FPC, that some or all of these aspects might be present in their explanation. And so as we come now to a time of prayer it is truly one of the things that I and I know the staff team continually pray that we as a church might resemble a body that work together serving one another with our gifts ultimately for the glory of Christ our head. Let's conclude. Lord we thank you for the great work of salvation that you have done, Lord, that you have called us from this world, separated us from the enemy, placed us into a body, a body that stretches 2,000 years, Lord, that you have placed us within a body, with you as the head, and Lord, I pray that as your body, we might serve each other, that we might Seek to bear one another's burdens. And Lord, ultimately, I pray this morning that we would see the value of coming together. Lord, the value of experiencing your presence as a community, Lord, that we may not view ourselves as purely individuals, but that we may see the importance of coming together, that we may see the importance of serving one another.